Amos chapter number 8. You know, we've been preaching through the book of Amos for, this is part 13. That's hard to believe we've spent that much time in the book of Amos. Let me say, I'm thankful the Lord's fed me through it, and uh, I don't know what He's done for you, but, uh, it, you know, and maybe I sound selfish, but even if you didn't get nothing out of it, Brother Ken, I enjoyed it. Amen. <laughs> And uh, so I trust that the Lord's fed you and helped you out of the book of Amos. And uh, we've got tonight, and I think maybe probably one more message out of the book of Amos in chapter number 9. And uh, then we'll just pray as the Lord leads us. He'll know where we need to be. Amos chapter number 8. And let's begin reading in verse number 1. Amos chapter number 8, verse number 1. The Word of God says, Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then said the Lord unto me, the end is come upon my people Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. And the songs of the temple shall be howlings in that day, saith the Lord God. There shall be many dead bodies in every place. They shall cast them forth with silence. Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail, saying, When will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn, and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes, yea, and sell the refuse of the wheat? The Lord hath sworn by the excellency of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall not the land tremble for this, and every one mourn that dwelleth therein? And it shall rise up holy as a flood, and it shall be cast out and drowned as by the flood of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins and baldness upon every head. And I will make it as the morning of an only sun and the end thereof as a bitter day. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord." And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro, and seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. In that day shall the fair virgins and young men faint for thirst. They that swear by the sin of Samaria, and say, Thy God, O Dan, liveth, and the manner of Beersheba liveth, even they shall fall and never rise up again. Let's pray together. Father, what a blessing it is to be in your house. We thank you, Lord, for your graciousness, for your faithfulness, Lord, for your ever-present ministration of your Spirit in our midst. I pray that you would work in the service tonight. I pray that Christ would be magnified. I pray, Lord, that uh, that high places of our hearts would be cast down. And Lord, that uh, that our devotion for you would be elevated and exalted. And Lord, that we'd leave this place loving you more, more devoted unto you than when we came. And we'll be sure to thank you for the work that's accomplished. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Amos, there are five visions that are given to Amos in the latter portion of this prophecy. And uh, the first two are given in quick succession. 
Uh, and then they are followed by the vision of the plumb line. And we uh, spent a little time a couple weeks ago uh, talking about the plumb line and the significance of it and uh, how that God used that to show as though as the word of God, uh, he would lay it uh, in the midst of Israel and he would demand of them and he would ask of them uh, a reckoning because of their sin. Uh, we talked about, uh, as we've moved through the book of Amos, the uh, major theme of this book, which is the judgment of the northern ten tribes of Israel, or what's collectively known in Scripture as Ephraim. Uh, Ephraim was a name that was used for Israel uh, that was associated with their disobedience. And uh, so God would call the northern ten tribes Ephraim. In the book of Amos, uh, if we wanted to sort of summarize it, uh, we might say it is a prophecy against Ephraim or the northern ten kingdoms. And we've moved through these visions, the first three, the first two, that of the king's mowing, the grass, the grasshopper consuming the grass of the land and the fire causing drought in the land. And then that of the plumb line given in chapter number 6 and God saying he is going to uh, demand, or rather chapter 7, demand a reckoning of Israel. And then the fourth vision that's given is found here in Amos chapter number 8. It is the vision of the basket of summer fruit. And I'll go ahead and tell you how I plan on preaching this passage tonight. I'm going to preach all around my message and then I'm going to preach my message. Because God does this in a little bit different way than, than we are going to approach the passage. He sets forth an illustration. Something that those that had seen it would know and understand instinctively and immediately the significance of. And then he elaborates upon and expounds upon that illustration in the following verses. Most of us, we would wonder what a basket of quote-unquote summer fruit is. And even if you're aware of what that might be in the land of Israel, then you'd probably wonder what it signifies. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do things a little bit backwards. And I guess that's just because we're backwards people. Somebody say amen to that. But we're going to look at the body of passage. And I want you to notice a few things by way of introduction. And then we're going to come back around to this basket of fruit and ask ourselves, what can we learn from what God relates through it? So we find that the remainder of the passage divides itself into about uh, three different categories. The first thing we see is a divine condemnation in verses 4 through 6. In other words, God is telling Israel what he sees in the land. I wonder sometimes if God was to tell us what he sees in the land of America, what that description would be, Brother Larry. I wonder if God took a stroll in our churches and could speak visibly and audibly and descriptly about what he's seeing. I wonder what he would describe. Uh, we find in the book of Amos that he describes in detail just exactly what his problem is with the land of Israel. Number one, he, he notes that they were pitiless. Look at verse 4. He says, Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land fail. I want to be careful here. We can get in the weeds if we're not careful. But suffice it to say, we live in a country that um, while it has opportunity for everybody, and I praise the Lord for that, we also have a government that has a vested interest in seeing people dependent upon that entity of the government and is willing to take advantage of people to such a degree that it can create a class of people it can rule over. In other words, we have in many ways in our country a, uh, a situation where they would swallow up the needy and they would make the poor of the land to fail. I'd say this, that everywhere where the government has controlled things, it has led uh, to generational poverty. Hadn't that been the truth? 
You can look around and it's in the places where the government endeavor to provide everything for a person from cradle to grave that they live in a state of perpetual poverty. In a place where the government gets out of the way and lets people uh, make their own decisions and lets people uh, try to uh, get the get ahead themselves and better themselves economically, invariably people have the capacity to do that. But when you have the thumb of government upon the scales, uh, we find a place where poverty seems to be generational. You know, they did a study one time in that, statistically speaking, in the United States of America, a person only has to do about two or three things if they want to, within a generation, rise above the poverty line. One was to not get pregnant out of wedlock. Another was to finish high school. And uh, and the third one, I can't remember, it was probably to be rich or something, I can't remember. But it... Uh, If you were to do these things, then statistically you'd rise above the poverty line. Uh, Let me say this. The government has a vested interest in telling us that it's everybody else keeping people down. I'm of the opinion it's probably the government's attempt to lift everybody up that's keeping everybody down. Probably if they get out of the way, people could elevate themselves out of that circumstance. But what God, I don't know why we preach that, but it it felt good. And I agree with it. I agree with it. (laughs) I ain't backing up on it. I'm, I'm just saying I don't know how we got there. But what God noticed in the land of Israel is that they had no pity. They had no compassion. They had grown callous to such a degree that they were willing to step on anybody they needed to to elevate themselves. That reminds us of uh, our present situation today. Number two, notice they were profane. Verse 5 says, saying, when will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat? Here's what they were saying. When can we get done with all this religion stuff so that we can get what really matters? When, when are we going to just be done with all this religion stuff, Brother Ken, so that we can get to what really matters in life? Can I say the sad truth is there's a lot of people in Baptist churches have that same spirit and attitude. You can see it because when it, I, I see it, you may not see it because where you sit, but where I sit, you can see people start tapping their, their watches as it gets to a certain place. And uh, what are they saying? They're saying, man, let's get this done with so we can get out of here. Amen. I'm just saying this. We ought to come to the house of God not to get out, but to get in. And we ought to come for the purpose of meeting with the God of heaven and understanding that if he meets with us, won't nothing else matter. Amen. He looked at them and he said they were profane. Their interest in religious matters was purely superficial and uh, and was uh, purely out of obligation. And they endeavored to get done with this religion stuff quick as they could so they can get back to what was really their priority in life, which was material things. They wanted the new moon to be gone, meaning the feast that they would celebrate at the new moon. They wanted them just to be passed so they'd get on with selling their corn. And they wanted the Sabbath day to be done so they'd go ahead and set forth more wheat. They were just trying to get through it. Brother Ken, that's all they was trying to do. God helped me to never just be trying to get through it. We all have days that are hard. You know that. I know that. We all have days that we have to go to the house of God and there is a sense of duty involved because our flesh doesn't want us to. But I never want to come in the house of God just looking to get out of the house of God. Amen. I want to come in looking to meet with the Lord. So they were profane. And then notice they were perverse in their behavior. It says, making the ephah small and the shekel great and falsifying the balances by deceit. In other words, uh, the ephah being a measurement of uh, of barley or of wheat or of 
flour of any number of things. Uh, they they lined the uh, the inside of those baskets of ephah in order to try to beat out the next person out of getting a full ephah. And then they would inflate the uh, value or deflate rather the value of the shekel and uh, make it to where they had to have more money and more things to uh, uh, in order to buy something. And they were falsifying the balances uh, by deceit. They were putting weights on their balances in order to uh, beat people and deceive people and grift people. It says that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes, yea, and sell the refuse of the wheat. In other words, it led to a crookedness in their behavior. And by the way, that's a progression that we see there. Uh, when we lose our sympathy and empathy for folks, when we view them as a commodity that can be leveraged against our position in life, uh, it's because we have viewed the things of God in a profane way. We don't fear God. Why would you love people if you don't fear God? Why would you love people if you don't fear God? Have you met people? I mean, why would you if you didn't fear God? So those two things are connected, and pretty soon they viewed them as pieces on a chessboard that could be manipulated. So we see the divine condemnation in verses 4 through 6. And then in the next few verses, we find the divine retribution. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, some of this we'll make application of, and some of it really only has to do with Israel, but we'll mention it nevertheless. And we find a pattern in verses 7 down through verse number 12. I want you to see if you can pick up on it. Look at verse number 7. It says, The Lord hath sworn by the excellency of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Look down at verse number 9. God says, It shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon. He said, I will darken the earth in the clear day. Verse 10, He said, I will turn your feasts into mourning. He said, I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins and baldness upon every head. I will make it as the morning of an only son. Verse number 11 and down into verse 12. In verse 11, he says, I will send a famine in the land of the hearing of the words of the Lord. Seven times it thunders out, I will, I will, I will, I will. Now, what is God saying? God's saying this, your time for action is done and my time for action has begun. He's saying, I have been patient, I have been long-suffering. But he says, now I will act. That's an action phrase, I will. I determine to do something. And seven times he states that he will intervene uh, in his people's lives uh, in order to exact judgment. We find divine retribution here. It really comes in, in, in a few different ways. One, we see the demands of his holiness. He says, I will never forget any of their works. I think that's one of the scariest passages in the whole Word of God. I'm thankful we live under a covenant today where God said, I will remember their sins and iniquities no more. But can I say this, that uh, in a sense, I think that the threat that is lodged against Israel in chapter number 8 and verse 7 of the book of Amos, I think still has an application to us in this church age. Because I don't think what God is saying when He talks about uh, remembering or forgetting sins or works or actions is a matter of memory, but it's a matter of mandate. And what He's saying in this passage is, I have been willing to overlook your sin and transgression. I have accepted your sacrifices. I have extended to you a day of mercy and long-suffering. But here's what he's saying. The cows have come home, and it's now time to pay the bill. He's saying, now I'm going to remember your works. And can I say this? If we refuse to confess and repent of our sin, God will be forced to chasten us because of our disobedience. 
Now you say, but preacher, I'm under grace. Well, go ahead and live in disobedience and see if grace will spare you of chastening. The Bible says every son whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Chastening is a product of love. God does love you. God does love me. We are under the grace of God. You say, preacher, why would he chasten me if we were under grace? Let me put it to you a different way. If we were under, under fairness, he wouldn't chasten us, he'd destroy us. The chastening is an act of grace and an act of mercy. You parents out there, uh, or parents that have raised kids, when you discipline your kids, when you whipped your kids, uh, did you do it because you just enjoyed doing it? Now, my parents did, but nobody else's parents did. No, of course you didn't do that. It wasn't something you was doing for you. It was something you was doing for them. It was an act of grace. Uh, but it was not necessarily an act of mercy. And God is saying this, that uh, the demands of His holiness will be met in the chastening of His people. And God does chasten His people. Uh, it doesn't mean we talked a lot about the love of God and our love of God this morning. And certainly the chief motivation ought not to be fear. Uh, perfect uh, love casteth out fear. But let me say this, when we're living in sin, we're not expressing perfect love. And when we're not uh, living right, when we're living in sin, we have every reason to fear the chastening hand of God. And so he, he reminds them that the demands of his holiness will be met. Number two, we see the disturbing of the heavens. He says that he would do two things that would be signs in the heavens. First, he says, I will cause the sun to go down at noon in verse 9. And then he continues on and says, I will darken the earth in the clear day. Uh, now, some people have said, well, preacher, what does this have reference to? Uh, and it would appear, and we was talking a little bit about this this morning in our Sunday school class. You know, I believe that the Lord... Uh, I believe he fitted things at the first advent of Christ in such a way that Israel could have received him as their Messiah if they had chosen to do so. That's pretty expressly declared in the ministry of John the Baptist as it relates to the promise of the coming of Elijah. Uh, they looked at Jesus and they said, uh, you can't be the Messiah because Elijah is supposed to come before the Messiah does, and Elijah ain't showed up. And he looked at him and said, John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, and if you had received him, he would have been Elijah to you. Now, what was he saying? He was saying, God's not surprised that you're rejecting me, but God gave you a fair shot at accepting me as the Messiah. And it would seem that even as regards the punishment of God upon the people of Israel, there seems to be a continuity in the way that God does things uh, relative to uh, in the Old Testament when he would pour out judgment upon them, relative to the coming tribulation in which God will uh, pour out judgment upon the land of Israel as well as upon the earth, but also both those things to, seem to communicate and correlate to Calvary. Because what we find is that on Calvary, most assuredly, the sun did. It didn't go down, to use the poetic language that was given here, but it was darkened. It was blackened. It, it was it was veiled. It was covered. It was, we don't know all of the uh, astronomical, uh, you know, implications of that. But the Bible says that it went dark for the space of three hours. And then because of that, the whole earth turned dark as well. God was saying this, I'm going to bear witness of this judgment in the heavens. God did that in the Old Testament when He judged His people. God did that in the New Testament when He judged His Son. God's going to do that, the book of Joel tells us, in the tribulation period when He judges this world. What's He doing? He's letting His handiwork bear witness to His dissatisfaction with His creation. So we find the disturbing of the heavens. Then we find the despair in their hearts. Verse number 10, uh, he begins a series of three things that he says in verse number 10. He says, number one, I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. 
In other words, he was going to take their public celebrations, uh, some of them religious in nature, some of them secular in nature, but all of them, uh, God said, I'm going to turn those into mourning. I'm going to turn those into lamentations. I'm going to turn those into sorrow. There'll be no public celebrations. And then not only that, he says, I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins and baldness upon every head. Both of these things were uh, public significations that a person was grieving and repenting uh, of their sin or of their situation. And then he says, I will make it as the mourning of an only son. Isn't that interesting language? In other words, God said this, I gave my only son for you. And if you reject him, you're going to have to grieve as though you're grieving for your only son. I'm glad, Brother Charlie, uh, that I can let his death stand for my death. We find this same dynamic, by the way, in the book of Exodus, don't we? Whenever the uh, angel of death passed over the land, if they slayed the lamb and put the blood upon the doorpost, then the firstborn son would be spared. What was that a signification of? What, what, what was it that that pictured? It pictured the substitutionary death of the Lamb of God on Calvary, that He died in the place of the firstborn son, the one that would have been reckoned against and the one that would have been called for if There was a debt that had to be paid. The lamb died in that firstborn son's place. Well, now we have the flip side of this coin in Amos chapter number 8. Because God says, I've mourned for my only son, but you scoffed and rejected him. And now you're going to mourn as though it is for your only son. It's interesting the distinction uh, that God gives. I mean, the word of God is just so specific and so accurate. He does not say uh, that I will make it the mourning of an only son. He says, I will make it as the mourning of an only son. Because there'd be folks that wouldn't have sons. There'd be folks that would only have daughters or would have no children at all. But God says, you will know the pain of what it felt like. Oh, listen, hey, what, what, a, what, a, what a terrifying prospect the judgment of God is. He says the end thereof as a bitter day. Now, all these things are in reference to the coming Assyrian invasion of Israel. And by the way, every one of them happened just exactly the way God said it would. But they cast an eye forward beyond that day of judgment to a day when the Lord Jesus took our judgment upon Him and then to a farther day in the future from where we stand during the tribulation period when God will pour out judgment upon the world and upon Israel as well. We see the last thing that He mentions here, the deafness in their hearing. He says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. And we find this same triune application. After the Assyrians invaded the northern ten tribes, they were scattered. They've still never come back to the land. They were essentially, their tribal identity was annihilated, known now only to God in heaven. He knows who's of the tribe of Dan. He knows uh, who's uh, of the tribe of Naphtali, but they don't know anymore who it is. And uh, they were scattered to the heavens. And uh, immediately at the close of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, there was a period of 400 years where the voice of God did not speak. And the children of Israel, the northern ten tribes, had been scattered to Gentile lands. And they didn't have a tabernacle to worship at. And they didn't have a temple to worship at. They didn't have a prophet uh, to declare the word of God to them. But then we find a similar thing that takes place at Calvary. You still with me tonight? We find a similar thing that takes place at Calvary. Uh, The Bible says in the book of Daniel, chapter number 9, we've been studying on that in Sunday school, in the book of Daniel, chapter number 9, it talks about those 70 weeks 
uh, and that after uh, 69 of those weeks, after 483 years, the Messiah would be cut off, uh, but not for himself. Thank the Lord he was cut off for me. Amen. Uh, that's picturing Christ on Calvary dying for your sins and for my sins. But the Bible says then after that, that the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the holy city. That's referring in 70 A.D. whenever the Roman emperor, he was a general at the time, he wasn't the emperor, but the Roman general Titus uh, sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. In 70 A.D. uh, the temple was destroyed and there's never been a temple since then. And now for 2,000 years the Jewish people have wandered to and fro. Uh, They are under a state of judicial blindness as a nation. They individually can turn to the Lord and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But nationally speaking, there's a veil over their eyes in the reading of Moses. And for two, almost 2,000 years, they've wandered through the world and they've had no priest and they've had no tabernacle and they've had no temple and they've had no sacrifice and they've had no prophet. Now, they've had the Son that spoke from heaven, but they've had no national prophet. In many ways, it looks forward to the coming of the tribulation period uh, when uh, for a, a season of time there will be two prophets that preach and prophesy. There will be 144,000 that preach and prophesy, but the Bible says that the people in Israel will be scattered from the land. They'll hide in rocks and in caves, fearing for their lives. He's saying this, that one of the judgments of God upon you will be, I will withhold the blessing of the precious Word of God. Can I say this as I apply it to your life and to my life, that one of the greatest blessings we have is is this book right here. And one of the uh, one of the most woeful forms of punishment that can fall upon us is for God to remove the influence of His voice in the people in our life that declare truth unto us. There's times that people love you, they'll tell you truth that hurts you. Uh, but it hurts you because it helps you. And we better thank the Lord for that truth when it's given to us. We'd be in far worse shape if God just shut His mouth and quit dealing with us. So we find the divine retribution. And then in verses 13 uh, and 14, we find the divine determination. Here's what God said things were going to wind up for. He said, this is what I've determined upon you. Verse 13, he says, In that day shall the fair virgins and young men faint for thirst. They that swear by the sin of Samaria and say, Thy God, O Dan, liveth. Now, evidently, they're talking about that golden calf that sat in Dan. And there were people that when judgment came, they ran to those false gods. Can I say this? We often say that trouble brings out the best in people. But I found that very often that is not the case. Oftentimes trouble brings out the worst in people. Sometimes people double down on their idols and their false gods. That certainly seems to be the situation as we read the the Bible concerning the end days when perilous times come that men shall be lovers of their own selves and covetous and boasters and proud. They're not running to the God of heaven, but they're running to their false gods. And that's what Israel did in the day when the Assyrians marched through the gate. They didn't run to Jerusalem. They didn't run to the brazen altar. They didn't run to the holy of holies. They ran to their false gods. They ran and swore uh, by the golden calf, the sin of Samaria, saying, Thy God, O Dan, Live and the manner of Beersheba. It's interesting the way that said the manner. Because when we think of a manner, we think of a person's ways. That's what we think of. We say that person's manner or mannerisms, their way, their uh, path, the way they conduct themselves. 
And some commentators have suggested that this is actually referring to a very distinct place of idolatry in Beersheba where they had a bunch of false gods set up down a, down a pathway that they could walk down and acknowledge each of these gods the same way that Paul found it when he stood on Mars Hill and he saw the big line of all the false gods that they did this in Beersheba and that the one at the very end was in an image of that golden calf that they worshipped. And there were some that said that the manner of Beersheba liveth. In other words, all these gods live and our false way of worship lives. What does God say? He says, even they shall fall and never rise up again. You know, the Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. When, when God's rebuking you and I, He's not doing it because He's got nothing better to do. And He's not doing it because He enjoys doing it. He's doing it because He understands that when we choose the way of transgression, we choose a hard way. The way, the manner, we might say, of transgression is a hard way. We can go after all false gods, but understand if we do, we'll fall with those false gods. I ain't talking about losing your salvation, but I am talking about your life falling into disarray and destruction and chaos. If we cling to those false gods, then we'll fall when they fall. That's what we find with Israel. So as we read through this chapter, we see a few things. We see a divine condemnation. He declares what his problem is with them. Uh, we see a divine retribution seven times. He says, I will do this, I will do that. I will never forget. I will cause the sun to go down. I will darken the earth. I will turn your feasts into morning. I will bring up sackcloth. I will make it as the morning of an only son. And I will send a famine to the hearing of the words of the Lord. Seven times, he says, I'm going to pour out judgment. And then we see a divine determination. He says, this is my plan for you. You if you refuse to repent. But you know, all this is used as an exposition of that first divine illustration given in verses 1 through 3. Let's read it again together. And I've got just a few simple, quick thoughts I want to share with you about it. Verse 1, Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. Now, best as we can tell, a basket of summer fruit... The fact that it says summer fruit does not necessarily denote the types of fruits that it could be. It could be any number of citrus fruits. It could be any number of types of fruits uh, that would have been present there in the land of Israel. But when it says summer fruit, its its, it's indication is not necessarily the, the species of fruit, but the season of fruit. And these would have been delicate fruits. They would have been fruits that would have been produced at the end of the growing season. It would have been the last harvest before they plowed up their land and re-sowed it once again. So Amos sees this basket of summer fruit. And I don't know if he knew immediately or he may have only known when God said it, but it seems apparent to me that the message stuck with him. Because the Lord said unto him in verse 2, The end is come upon my people of Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. Let's stop and think about that basket of summer fruit. And let's think about three thoughts with it as it relates to your life and mine. Here's what God was saying. He was saying Israel's like that basket of summer fruit. It may look beautiful right now, but it's got a short lifespan. A short, we use the common terminology today, a short shelf life. What he's saying is this, it looks beautiful now. But it won't look beautiful for very long. Notice three simple thoughts with me, and then we'll close tonight. Let's think first off about the ripening of the fruit in this summer basket. Now, it's apparent to me uh, that this fruit was ripe, or it wouldn't have been a basket in the first place. You typically don't pick unripe fruit. 
And so evidently, as he beheld it, he knew from looking at it that this was fruit from late in the season. In other words, it was the last fruit of the year in Israel. Now, what would that have represented to him? Well, here's how God characterized it. Brother Ken, he looked at it and he said, this is what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say the end is come upon my people. So the fact that this fruit was ripe represented two things, apparently. One, it represented the fullness of time. God was saying that just as this fruit is given a determined amount of time, and then it is fru- it is ripe, and it doesn't help it to stay on the vine anymore. It is an appropriate time for it to be uh, plucked from the vine. You know, I've been, we, we kind of raise a garden. <laughs> I say kind of because some years we do better at it than others. We've not done real good at it this year. Uh, it seemed like we neglected it and neglected it and neglected it, and then God decided the rain would neglect it for a few weeks. And uh, now we're just kind of trying to decide if we're brave enough to walk back in there and see what's left. But when we go to plant our garden, we look on those little packages, and there there are some days that are on those packages, some time frames. If you've ever looked at a package of, of seed, there will be the days to maturity that are listed on that. And what it's saying is this, that this is how long it's going to take for this plant to come to maturity and for the fruit that it bears to ripen and be produced. Ripening is a process of time. And when something's ripe, it's an indication that the fullness of time for it has been met. A thing can be overripe. You know what that we call that? We call that rotting. So what you want is you want to get it when it's just ripe. God says that Israel is ripe for ruin. You know what that tells me? That there is, I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say, in the life of the children of God. These are the people of God. You understand we have a greater accountability than even Old Testament Israel did, for we are not just the people of God, we are the children of God. There is a limit to the duration of God's long-sufferingness in your life and mine. Now you say, you know, how do you know that, preacher? Well, the Bible tells us even as regards God's relationship with the lost person in the New Testament, that God is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But you know that is given in the context of the fact that God is long-suffering, but He limiteth a certain day. There comes a time when the long-sufferingness of God will run out, and God will exact judgment upon this world. That's true for you and I. And I find it to be the experience in my relationship with my children. So it doesn't surprise me that this is the case in God's relationship with His children. I generally have a period of time where I'm willing to be patient. But there comes a point of time where uh, it's no longer patience, it's no longer long-sufferingness that is called for, but it is corrective instruction. And here's what God's saying, you have crossed that line, and now the fullness of time has come. Uh, you know, we better be careful in our lives. There does reach a point, and I don't know exactly where this line is, and I think that's by design. God doesn't tell us we're going to have 20 days to obey Him, Brother Charlie, or 30 days to obey Him. You know why? Because we, we'd wait 19 days, and we'd wait 29 days. And God expects and demands obedience right away, but He is merciful, and He is long-suffering. But there is a line. The commentators call it that invisible line between God's mercy and God's judgment that can be crossed. We find it in the life of the children of Israel. Uh, There reached a point where he said in the book of Hosea, their wound, Brother Ken, is incurable. God said there's nothing for them now but judgment that is left. You know what's happening? They're ripening. And they reach a point where God says, all right, that's enough. Uh, Can I just give fair warning in our lives tonight? Uh, We better not spend too much time on the vine. 
we better not spend too much time on the vine. When it's time to obey the Lord, we better obey the Lord. It represents the fullness of time, but then also I think it indicates the fullness of transgressions. The idea being that anything beyond... The fruit had borne all of the maturing that it could handle, Brother Charlie, before it would begin to decay and before it would begin to deteriorate. You know, in in your life and mine, God is merciful as regards not just the time uh, that He allows us to repent and to obey Him, but even as regards the sin in our lives. If God destroyed us every time we had sin in our lives, we wouldn't make it three steps. But that does not mean God does not have a limit to the amount of sin He'll permit in our lives. God does have a limit. Uh, You can sin a sin unto death. You can reach a point where you're doing more damage to the name of Christ than you are help to your own self in the day of judgment or at the judgment seat of Christ and where it is a mercy for God to remove you from this world. Because to leave you here would just be to wreck your testimony and to give you more to account for and to answer to. And God looks at Israel and says, I've permitted sin in your national life, but no more. There is a fullness of transgressions. They were perfectly ripe for something to be done with them. You know what? And I don't want to get ahead of my message. I'm going to say a little bit about this here in a moment. But when the fruit is ripe, there's only a couple things you can do with it. You can eat it or you can throw it away. One of the two. In other words, it's time to get in or get out is what God's saying. He's saying the time of hanging out on the vine is done. I've been patient with you. It is time for you to produce something or it is time for you to be discarded. And we reach a point in our lives and you say, well, preacher, how do we know when we're at that point? Well, I'm going to give you the advice that we're all being given today. Every time you get a cough or a sniffle, they tell you, you just act like you got it. Just pretend like you got it. It's what we're being told now. Uh, we ain't, you know, we ain't going to give you test results for, you know, 40 days or whatever. So to be safe, you just pretend you got it. And uh, that's the best medical advice that's being given, I guess, today. Uh, let me give you a little bit of modern medical advice. You say, preacher, how do I know when I'm at that point? You just go ahead and figure you're already there. Just go ahead and act like you already got it. Amen. Go ahead and act like tonight's your last chance. Because it could be. Could be. Man, listen, far more righteous men than I have been taken out of this world because of sin in their lives. I better just go ahead and figure that there is no more time, that I'm already ripe, that I'm already at the place of decision, and that I must make my choice. So we see the ripening of the fruit. Number two, I want to say a word about the reaping of the fruit. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, it's in the basket. It's not on the vine. So evidently, the hand of the husbandman has already reached out and grabbed a hold of it and has placed it in the basket. And that reminds me a couple things. Inasmuch as we look at the reaping of this fruit, but Ken, I think it I think it best correlates to the idea of judgment or of God dealing with them as a people. And you know, when you think about reaping of, of fruit or of vegetables or of anything uh, in the life of its existence, we, we could probably make two statements about it. One would be this, that reaping is inevitable. Everything that's planted by human hand, for the most part, is planted with the intention of it one day being reaped. I don't plant, I don't plant flowers. There's flowers everywhere. I mow down weeds that people call flowers. Somebody say amen to that. But I plant vegetables and I plant, you know, we do our vegetable garden and stuff. Everything I plant, I plant, Brother Larry, expecting that I'm going to come back out there and find fruit on it and pluck it off there. The reaping is inevitable. 
That's kind of the purpose in the planting. You listening? That's kind of the purpose in the planting is the reaping. Now, let's connect that to our lives. One day we're going to stand before God and give an account for our lives, Brother Charlie. That's not a byproduct of our existence. That's kind of the whole purpose in it. We're here for His glory, the book of Ephesians says. That's not, the reaping is not incidental. It's intentional. It's the purpose of it. And because of that, the reaping is inevitable. There was coming a day, whether this fruit liked it or not, where the husband was come walking down this row and reach out and grab this fruit. And can I say in your life and mine, there's coming a day when the husbandman is going to come walking down the row of our life and reach out, Brother Charlie, and grab our life to assess it. The book of Hebrews says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. The judgment. Uh, Paul said we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ give an account for the things done in the body, whether they be good or whether they be bad. We're all going to stand before the Lord. You and I, we're going to have a reaping day when we're going to stand before God. at the judge. If you're saved at the judgment seat of Christ, if you're lost at the great white throne judgment. And let me say, that's a more terrible judgment. That's a more terrible judgment. For there's only one place that the fruit is tossed to at the great white throne judgment. And that's in the, in the, in the burn pile. <laughs> that's in the trash heap. But at the judgment seat of Christ, we're all going to stand there one day. Reaping is inevitable. And then I thought about a second thing. You know, reaping is irreversible. Once you take it off the vine, Brother Charlie, you can't put it back on the vine. You know what God says to His people Israel? He says, the end has come upon my people Israel. Then He says this, I will not again pass by them anymore. This is similar to the language that he uses earlier on in uh, chapter number 7, verse number 8, he says, I will not pass by them anymore. God's saying there is a finality to the judgment that is being pronounced upon Israel. And by the way, that's been true. They as a kingdom, those northern ten tribes, have never come back into the land. There was a finality to it. This reaping was irreversible. It was irrevocable. They could not change it. They could not back up. They couldn't do it again. They couldn't take a mulligan. They couldn't have a second chance. Once it was done, it was done. Can I say when we stand before Him, there will be no second chances. We won't get to come back and try this life again. Anything you're going to do for Jesus, you better do now. Because you won't have another chance. When you leave this life... You'll, you'll never hand out another gospel tract. You, you'll never break your heart in prayer for some loved one or some family member or from some lost person again. Uh, you'll never again have the choice of whether you want to go to church or not. Uh, you'll never again have the choice of whether you want to go to Sunday school or not. If you're going to serve Him, you better serve Him now. Because when He reaps your life, that's it. Only one life will soon be passed, the songwriter said. Only what's done for Christ will last. This is it. This is our one chance. We don't get another one. How often do we only learn that truth when it's too late and we've lived most of our life and we have more of the road behind us than in front of us? Would to God that we as young people, I'm talking about me tonight, we as young people get it through our head that this is our one chance. When we're reaped, when we stand before God, there is no going back and doing it over again. So I, I see the reaping of the fruit. But then let me say a word in closing about the rotting of the fruit. Because there's really only two options for this fruit at this point. It can't go on living. It has already begun dying. 
And so there are only two options for it. Either consumption or corruption. There's only two places that this fruit can go. And I, I just sort of mentioned it this way and, and uh, we'll mention this and then close. One, Brother Ken, it will delight in the belly. That's what it's there for. You don't grow fruit to look at. You can go buy some of that wax garbage from the Hobby Lobby if you're just going to look at it. The reason you grow it is so that you need it. That, I guess that's why I like gardening. is because it's, it's a hobby that's food-driven. Amen? And, and, and so I like it. it. The purpose of it is for it to delight in the belly. And you know, that kind of reminds me that the reason you and I live in this world is to be well-pleasing in God's sight, to delight Him, to be a delight in the eyes and heart of the Lord. We're here for His consumption. We are. We're here uh, so for His consumption. We're here to make our life a living sacrifice, to be burnt up upon the altar of His service to please Him. And I wrote down a few verses, Brother Charlie, that sort of reminded me of that. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, God's talking about Israel. And He said, Now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And He's talking about Israel. He said, And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes. And it brought forth wild grapes. Now, he's talking about Israel, but God's using the illustration there of himself as a husbandman coming to the vine, expecting fruit from it. Luke chapter number six or 13, Jesus spake this parable and said, A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit of this fig tree and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? Here again, God is likened unto a husbandman that has come to a fig tree and he is demanding and expecting fruit from it and he has every right to expect fruit from it. Then we find again in John chapter 15, I bet you've heard this passage. The Lord Jesus said, I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth much, or bring forth more fruit. Down in verse 8, he says, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. Now, I read those passages for this reason. I want you and I to get it through our head that God expects something out of our life. He expects something out of our life. Our life is to be lived for His glory. That's why we exist. That's why we're in the basket tonight. So that He can be delighted in our lives. But there is a second option. It will delight in the belly, or number two, it will deteriorate in the basket. There is another option. It can just sit there and rot. Any of y'all that eat fresh fruit, you know it don't take long. It don't take long. There's a reason the grocery store stocks green bananas. Because half the time, by the time you get home, they got brown spots in them, brother. Ken, you buy them as green as they can be. By the time you get home, you crack it open and it's growing hair. Amen. Got teeth. It don't take long for it to deteriorate in the basket. Are you listening to me? It don't take long to deteriorate in the basket. You might have served God for many long years and said, now I'm just going to back off and take it easy. It don't take long to deteriorate in the basket. There, listen, everything in this life is either growing or, or, or dying. It's either, it's either living or it's dying. And when that fruit hits the basket, it has a short shelf life, a short lifespan. And if it stays in that basket long, it's just going to rot down and become a mess. 
God looked forward to the mess that Israel would be in. In verse 3, he says that the songs of the temple shall be howlings in that day. He said there will be many dead bodies in every place. They shall cast them forth with silence. He looked and he saw that basket of summer fruit rot in the basket. And you know the sad truth is in your life and mine, you know the great tragedy of our life would be for us to rot in the basket. For God to go to so much trouble to create us, to to shield us, protect us, preserve us, save us by His grace, uh, fix us in His body, situate us in His kingdom, equip us for His service, and us just sit there and rot in the basket in inactivity. The fruit, by the way, the rotting is not an active thing, it's a passive thing. It's not a product of the fruit doing anything wrong, it's a product of the fruit not doing anything at all. You don't have to do anything wrong to rot, just don't do anything at all. Just sit and warm the bench. Just sit and ride a church pew and never serve the Lord. And pretty soon your spirit will rot. Your joy will rot. Your grace with others will rot. And it won't take long and you'll deteriorate in the basket. I don't want to be like that in my life. I want to be, I want a life lived to the pleasure and glory of God. I want to be pleasing unto Him. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar is open, and I've already preached my message. I'm not going to ask you a hundred questions, but I will just ask you to do this. If God spoke to your heart, would you be willing to deal with Him tonight in obedience? Would you come and meet Him in this altar? Father, I pray that you'd bless this invitation. I pray that your people get help tonight. I pray that they'd be obedient. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Jesus' name. With our heads bowed, our eyes closed, she's going to play as soon as she's ready. The altar is open. God's touched your heart. Why don't you come tonight? Hey, he's waiting on you in the altar. Why don't you come meet him down here? You'll just come down and say, Lord, I want my life to be yours. I want it to be pleasing unto you. He'll meet you down here. And he'll do the work that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Father, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to be in your house. We thank you for the precious truth of your word. Lord, I'm glad you deal with us. What a woeful, terrible thought it would be that you wouldn't deal with us. It's not comfortable when you do, and no chasing for the present time seemeth joyous but grievous. But, oh, Lord, I thank you that you love us enough to deal with us. pray that you'd help us to respond in obedience to this truth that has been given, and I pray that in the coming days the Spirit of God would have liberty to continue to minister this truth effectively in our hearts and minds.